Well, welcome to Life's Journey. Thank you for coming out tonight. Um, as Dustin mentioned, I am Blake Arnold. I am the student pastor. And um, I really want to open up by, by praying tonight because um, I find every time I prep a, a sermon that it just feels like a weighty thing. It sits heavy. Um, me and a friend of mine back there were talking about how each time you, you preach, it's like you finish and it's just, you gotta take a nap. It's just a weighty, tiring thing. And it's because there's that weight to, to be faithful to the word, to speak truth. So if you would pray with me, because I, I believe nothing that we do here as a church matters if we do not fix our eyes on the Lord and we do not go to him first. So let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to meet, that we can, that we can do it freely and without fear. Thank you that we have free access to your word, that, that we don't have to hide fragments in pockets and in hidden places just to have your word, Lord. As we dig into this chapter, Lord, I pray that you would guide my tongue, that you would allow me to only speak what you have to say to your people, that if it's not from you, you would seal my tongue to the roof of my mouth. Lord, I pray that we'd leave here inspired and in awe of you, and worshiping. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to open with a question. What makes a good story good? I've been asking this question to myself a lot recently. After all, as people, it seems that stories are integral to us. We pass history down in stories. We share experiences with each other in stories. We consume story in everything from movies to books to music and poetry. The belief we hold and the faith we believe itself was even passed down in story. Eventually, when we are no longer for this earth, even our very lives will whittle themselves down to stories. They are both what our midst of a life will end in and the very narratives that we seek for strength to continue living. Stories have strength. They can break us, they can lift us up. They can inspire us and they can inspire hopelessness. They can elate and despair the heart. Now I don't ask what makes a good story good so that we can become better storytellers but rather because if stories are so integral to us as people, 
it seems relevant for us to understand them. Today, our passage is a story that I would like to investigate. Our passage is Zechariah 3, and the narrative and picture are simply amazing to me. So, let's take a look at it. Our story picks up in verse 1. Starts by saying, then he, meaning the one that is guiding Zechariah through these visions that he's been having since the beginning of the book. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So the story begins with Zechariah being shown a man, a high priest by the name of Joshua. This man is standing before the angel of the Lord and, as we will see, the Lord himself. It's a glorious place to be, but I want to put this heavenly scene in perspective for us. If you take a look at Revelation 4 through 5, which there are a lot of passages and stories I'll reference, they are available in the notes section on ljc.life if you want to do that extra investigation. But in Revelation 4 through 5, we see a scene set of the throne room. There are 24 elders who would fall on their face in worship, casting their crowns before the Lord. There are four living creatures with faces like oxen and eagles and, and lions, and they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And they do this day and night. There are myriads of angels proclaiming, worthy is the Lamb. Isaiah 6 sets another scene where we see seraphim before the Lord shouting to each other, the Lord is great. Isaiah in his vision in Isaiah 6 sees smoke fill the temple and it's very much like how smoke would fill the temple when Solomon would dedicate the temple. You find those in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7. This smoke was so thick with the presence of the Lord that the priest couldn't do anything but worship. Israel, when they were before Mount Sinai with Moses, they trembled as they saw a cloud of smoke descend on the mountain with the presence of God, and the mountain shook, and they fell on their faces. Isaiah fell on his face, sure of death, because he had seen the Lord. In fact, we even see Samson's parents would fear death as well, proclaiming, we have seen the Lord after they saw the angel of the Lord. Joshua was no doubt terrified, and rightfully so. He was a sinful man standing before the Lord. He, as a high priest, knew the the importance of being spotless and blameless before the Lord. The high priests were commanded to dress immaculately. In fact, when the high priest would perform the atonement sacrifice each year, they would tie a rope with bells on it around his ankle. This was just in case he got struck dead for his imperfections. That way they could drag him back out without entering the Holy of Holies themselves. Joshua had a problem, though. He's in this glorious place, and he had a problem. We see this in verse 3. It says, Now Joshua, 
was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The word here for filthy in the original language is not a pretty word. It denotes human excrement. The idea is Zechariah or Joshua's clothes are stained with human excrement. So not only is Joshua before the holy Lord of all, the one who told Moses that he couldn't but show Moses his robe lest Moses die. He is there in this awesomely terrifying place and he is filthy. He is a physical representation of what Isaiah would call our righteousness, filthy rags. The priests were to clean themselves extensively from head to toe before going into the holy places where God inhabited the temple. And yet, Joshua is unfit to be before the king of kings. He is unclean. He stands defiled before the holy Lord of lords. He's unclean and stained before the almighty judge. And I have no doubts that he was keenly aware of the gravity of this situation. He should be struck down right where he stands. He should be thrown out like the filth that he is. And as if that isn't bad enough, the second half of verse one gives us another problem. And Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. As Satan made accusations, I doubt Joshua even thought to refute it. The evidence to indict him was there, and it was obvious. I imagine with every accusation, Joshua merely looked at each stain, thinking, he's right. There's that stain. There's that one. With each accusation, I'm sure he sank deeper and deeper into despair. We don't know what the accusations were, but I'm sure we all know the sound. They are lustful. He's prideful. She's lazy. They're sinful. Surely Joshua thought that this is where his story ends. Then the unexpected happens. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this man not, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What? How can this be? Satan was right, wasn't he? He had the stains and the scars to prove it. Yet the Lord rebukes Satan, not Joshua. This is astounding. Joshua was a high priest, and he knew the weight and importance that standing pure and undefiled before the Lord had. Lord, don't you see the stains? Don't you see my sins? Lord, he's right he might have thought. 
the Lord replies to Satan's accusations, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? The Lord proclaims he has set Joshua aside and this is just the beginning. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. He removed the very thing that made Joshua unfit to be before the Lord to begin with. He took away the filth. He took away the sin. Joshua was in clear and evident disobedience and opposition to the command of God. What kind of God is this that one should come before him defiled, guilty, wretched, and accused, and rather than sentence him to his rightful death, he would silence the accuser, and the accused, he would equip in worthiness. What kind of God would silence the guilt of the guilty, acquitting them and dressing them in innocence? continues in verse 6. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Joshua has not only been redeemed and restored, but now he is charged with governing the house of God. It's as if none of his offenses even matter anymore. It's as if he's never done anything but please the Lord. He's given a purpose in the stead of a death that is rightfully his. He stands as an emissary of the very one that had every right to strike him down. The story doesn't end at mercy. Mercy is just him not receiving what he deserves. It moves forward in grace, giving him what he does not deserve. Joshua isn't just spared and made worthy before God. Joshua's story is expanded not ended. Verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men of symbolic things to come, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. These are the seven eyes, there are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord. Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The Lord promises to send the branch, but who is the branch? Throughout prophecy, the branch has been spoken of, the branch of David, the shoot of Jesse's stump. It spoke of Messiah, the one who would come and free his people, the one who would save his people from their enemies, establishing the rock, his church. 
the Lord isn't stopping at Joshua. No. No, he intends to do for many more as he has just done for Joshua. I want to return to the question I opened with. After all, we didn't answer it. What makes a good story good? I think a good story is defined by whether or not it inspires you, whether it moves you. We see Zechariah was moved by what he saw. Verse 5. Then I said, Zechariah is speaking, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Commentators have noted about the language here. There's a verbiage change that Zechariah displays. Suddenly he seems excited. Zechariah couldn't stand by. He sees the story unfolding and he had to get involved. Joshua is fully clothed. And yet Zechariah jumps in and says, Lord, give him a turban as well. Lord, do more. Lord, this grace. He's moved to put his hands in the story. Joshua is fully clothed and no doubt feeling much like Isaiah did in Isaiah 61.10 when he said, I am overjoyed for I am wrapped in his salvation and I am clothed in his, sal- in his righteousness. Zechariah was inspired. This chapter closes itself out in verse 10 with an invitation to move says, in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. There's a lot of language in this chapter that is symbolic language, and at its face, it doesn't, it may be hard to understand may be hard to grapple with what it's, what's being said. But I want to take the time on this one to show you the beautiful thing that the Lord is saying. Jesus said in John 15 that he is the vine. We are the branches. The fig tree is referred through, throughout prophecy. It's used as a reference to the nation of Israel. Now, Paul would go further in the New Testament as the church is established and as Christianity grows. He explains that, look, Israel is just the people of God and the Gentiles have been grafted into that picture. It's the church. So the Lord says here, in that day, you will invite your friends under your vine, Christ, and your fig tree, the church. incredible story. 
the story of redemption is beautiful. And despite the fact that everything in our lives seems to boil down to being a story at some point or another, this story of redemption, this story of gospel, is the only thing in all of existence that does not simply boil down to a story. It doesn't fade to story. See, stories change. They fade and eventually can be forgotten. The gospel never fades. And it never stays just a story. It persists. See, this is the story for any of us who are in Christ. We stood before the King of kings and the Lord of lords in the filth of our sin and iniquity. We were unfit to stand before the King. We were slated for a rightful death that we could neither change nor protest. With every accusation of the devil, we fell deeper into the despair of our fate. The Lord wasn't satisfied to leave it there, though. He made an astonishing move. He sent himself. God became flesh and dwelt among us. His name was Jesus. He came perfect and undefiled without sin. He was God clothed in pure white among people clothed in filth. He did something only God can do and only God would dream up. He took the filthy clothes of the people and he gave them clean clothes. See, what Joshua didn't know is that the angel of the Lord was Christ. Many scholars, including the likes of Polycarp, whom John the Apostle discipled, and Irenaeus, the disciple of Polycarp, would assert that any angel in the Old Testament who accepted worship was Christ. And we see many times throughout the Old Testament that when it uses the phrase, the angel of the Lord, he accepts worship. Joshua stood before Jericho. And the angel of the Lord showed up. Joshua bowed before him. Now the typical thing that an angel would do at this point is, get up, don't worship me. Not this angel. It allowed the worship of Joshua. This angel even proclaimed boldly in this chapter, Zechariah 3, I have removed your sin. Joshua was standing before Christ who would clothe him in white. And what Joshua also did not realize is that the clean white clothes that he was to be clothed in were Christ's clothes. And while Joshua was being clothed in the garments of the Savior, the Savior would be clothed in the garments of Joshua the sinner. How can this be? Why would Christ do this? 
I believe the answer is simple. It was nothing Joshua had done to earn or achieve it. It was his name. It was simply Joshua's name. You see, Joshua is the way we, in English, pronounce a Hebrew name. This Hebrew name is pronounced Yeshua. Now, this name translates to the Greek in a beautiful way because the Greek way to say this name is Jesus. Joshua was saved because of the name he bore and nothing more. As Isaiah 48 would say, he saves for his own name's sake. By the name of Christ Jesus, he was saved. The name of Christ Jesus we are saved. It is a name that itself means salvation. So, if the defining factor of a good story is whether it moves us, my closing question is this. Does the gospel inspire you. To those who may be listening who are not in Christ, does hearing and seeing such of God of grace and mercy inspire you to repentance and obedience to that Savior? Seeing that he extended life in the instead of a deserved death. Paul would tell us the wages of sin are death. The rightful payment for your work of sin is death. Does the mercy and grace of a God like that move you? To those of us who are in Christ, Does it remind you this is more than a story or a tall tale? This is our life in Christ after all. Does it inspire you to repentance and obedience? Does it cause you to look at the world around you which God has called you to reach and burden you for your neighbor? and burden you for your city. Does the gospel inspire you? Father, thank you for this time together, for this time to focus on your gospel and the redemption that you have brought to us. Thank you for what you've done for us. I pray that we never in our arrogance overlook it or belittle it. Lord, I pray that we never in our pride think ourselves above it. I pray that we never think that we are past it or have no more need for it. 
Lord, I pray that you would impress it on our hearts, that you would cause us to wrestle with the reality of who you are and what you've done. Lord, let it overtake us. Lord, keep us up at night with it until we are humbled by it. I pray that you give your people no rest until they rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would awaken your people, that you would come and comfort your people. this in Jesus' name. Amen.